So if you've been here for the, throughout the course of the year, you know that we're doing something this year called the whole story. We are going through the entire story of the Bible. We've broken the story of scripture down into 14 different series and we're just going one by one through them. Last Sunday, we finished Figuring Out Freedom, which was our fourth series. And today, we're starting series five. And I said this last week, but I wanna emphasize this. I am not a, a, what you would call a planner. Like I don't, like how many of you make to-do lists? Yeah, you're to-do list people, right? How many of you are married to someone who makes to-do lists? And you're like, I don't have to do that anymore. There you go. That's what I did. I just, I married a to-do list person. I don't, I don't plan things out super well. I always sort of know what day it is, like the day of the week. I'm like, it's Wednesday and I'm usually right. Because everything in my life is just, it's all moving towards Sunday. That's just the rhythm of my life. It's like, it doesn't really matter what the date is. It's just Sunday and then another Sunday and another Sunday. But there's negatives about not being a planner and not doing things like cross-referencing certain dates with major holidays. Because if I had done that, I would have realized that the series we're starting today, which is Mother's Day, is called So Much Blood. That is the series that we start today. Um, it's about all the wars, all the violence, all the bloodshed, all the ritual animal sacrifices that we have in this major portion of scripture. And that's just probably not what a planning person would do on Mother's Day. And I know that we've got some moms who are here just to like be with your kids and maybe don't go to this church. I'm sorry. <laughs> if it makes you feel better, my mom is disappointed in me too, okay? So in this moment, she's not really, she's gonna watch that and think that I'm, I know my mom's not, mom, I know you're not disappointed in me. It's all good, we'll talk later. All right, <laughs> it's good. So look, I know that that's not exactly a Happy Mother's Day sort of theme, but Matt had a great idea. We, we found a way to sort of mess with the graphic today to soften it up a little bit for Mother's Day. So I don't know if it'll help, um, but you know, maybe we go with a little bit more pink <laughs> and you know, it's just sort of like, like that. Just let that help. There you go. Yay, so much blood. All right. Well, poor timing aside, in all honesty, poor timing aside, I am actually extremely excited about going through this portion of scripture. Because if you're, if you're ever reading in your Bible and you're like, I'm gonna read through the whole Bible in a year, and maybe that's something you've done, maybe not. If, if not, try it, it's, 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 it's great. But you're gonna get stuck in some places. You're gonna get stuck in some places that are boring. And we've kind of covered some of that. There's a lot of genealogies and this person had this person who had this person who had this person, right? That's like, oh, okay. But these are, you're gonna get to like the second half of Exodus. And pretty much from, from the second half of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Kings, it's like every other page, it's just death and bloodshed. There's animals being sacrificed left and right. There's people making mistakes and the result is death. There's entire wars and, and there's nations. And, and it's actually a very challenging section of scripture. And it's one that, that trips a lot of people up because it sort of seems like this is God approved violence. And how do we reconcile that with this loving Jesus that, that we follow? And so for a lot of people, this can actually become like a deal breaker or it can at least kind of tiptoe to that line. It can be a crisis of faith or it becomes something that just makes us susceptible to doubt in an unhealthy way. There, there's a certain kind of doubt that causes us to ask questions that's good. There's another version of doubt that, 
makes it harder for us to say yes to God. And there are a lot of people, honestly, who are critics of our faith, who like to cherry pick sections of scripture from this portion and use it as sort of a gotcha mechanism to sort of make all of us go, oh, if you follow Jesus, that means you approve of this. And so a lot of people just don't know what to do with it. And so what a lot of churches do is just skip it. Just, let's just not talk about that. We've all got stuff in our past that we're like, yeah, we just don't need to talk about those years. Those weren't our best. But we have some things that we're really passionate about here at His Hands. One of those things is that we take God very seriously, but we don't take ourselves very seriously. We laugh a lot. We laugh at ourselves. That's one of my favorite things about our culture. So we, we like to have fun, but we also love truth. And I believe with conviction that all of Scripture is true. All of Scripture is God-breathed, and it has something to teach us. And so we don't do like a slalom course through Scripture, skipping the hard stuff. If we come across something difficult, we just deal with it. And I trust the Lord to help us understand it. I trust you guys as well. And this is one of those sections that a lot of people just kind of want to go, let's turn the pages quick. Because there again is just so much blood. But I want us to go through this and really explore it. And, and my hope is that we'll understand that this shows us so much about Jesus. It's kind of surprising at first glance, if you read through these stories in the Bible, it's hard to see Jesus until you see Jesus. And once you see him in it, you're like, whoa, this, this helps us have a much more clear understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Because if you think about it, blood is still a big theme in our faith. Even today, right, we sing about how nothing but the blood of, of Jesus, we're gonna take Lord's Supper as we finish today and we always thank Jesus for shedding his blood for us. All of this connects. It all connects. I'm just sorry that it's on Mother's Day that we're starting it. And so we're gonna look at three concepts over the next three weeks to help us understand this whole so much blood dynamic in the Bible. We're gonna look at consecration, cleansing, and conquest. Consecration, cleansing, and conquest. And today we're gonna start with this idea of, of consecration. I doubt that's a word many of you have used this last week. I don't know if you found a reason in the last seven days to say, man, I need to consecrate that before I go any further. But it's a word you actually see pop up a lot in, in these sections of the Bible. For example, Exodus chapter 19, verses nine and 10. It says, the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud, Moses, so that the people themselves can hear me when I speak with you. Then they will always trust you. Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And then the Lord told Moses, go down and prepare the people for my arrival, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and have them wash their clothing. We know that God values a few things here. He values consecration and clean clothes. That's what he wants of the people. That's all he's asking for. Consecrate yourselves, wash your clothes. We're about to meet. We see that word consecration. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. He says, I am the Lord your God. You must consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. This starts to give us an idea of what consecration means. It's one of those words that we see in the Bible and we're like, I kinda know what it means, what does it really mean? It's pretty simple. To consecrate something is to make it holy. To make it holy, God is holy. And that word holy means that he is, he is just more and greater and he's pure and he's righteous and he's good, that there's, there's no impurity in him whatsoever, he is holy. And he wants us to be holy. And so the only way we can be holy is to go through this process that he describes as, as consecration. And we see all kinds of examples in the Old Testament of consecration happening. And we're gonna read one of these right now. And I'm, I'm so excited about this because I think that I'm about to read 
the single most boring portion of scripture I have ever read on this stage. But it's an amazing example of consecration if you guys are willing to stick with it. Are we good? I mean, you say yes, but you don't know what we're about to do. <coughs> I'm gonna read the entirety of Exodus chapter 28. I know, someone just, oh, okay, here we go. And just to preview this for you, this is an entire section where God is describing uh, the clothing that he would like his priests to wear as they conduct their practices in the temple. So if that doesn't make you excited, I don't know what will. But I promise this has a point. It's just a lot. So can we read this together? Can you just, can you go with me? There's probably gonna be mispronounced words all over the place. Let's do this. Here we go. Exodus 28. No church in America is doing this today. I promise you. <laughs> Maybe for good reason. All right. Call your brother Aaron, which happens to be my brother's name. How cool is that? And his sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. <clears throat> Set them apart, which is consecration from the rest of the people of Israel so that they may minister to me and be my priest. Make sacred garments for Aaron that are glorious and beautiful. Instruct all the skilled craftsmen whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom. Have them make garments for Aaron that will distinguish him as a priest set apart from my service. These are the garments there to make, a chest piece, an ephod, a robe, a patterned tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and for his sons to wear as they serve me as priests. So give them fine linen cloth, gold thread, and blue, purple, and scarlet thread, which at the time, guys, this would have been insanely expensive stuff. The craftsman must take the ephod of finely woven linen and skillfully embroider it with gold and blue and purple and scarlet thread. It will consist of two pieces, front and back, joined at the shoulders with two shoulder pieces. The decorative sash will be made of the same materials, finely woven linen, embroidered with gold and with blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the tribes of Israel. Six, name, six names will be on each stone, arranged in the order of the births of the original sons of Israel. Engrave these names on the two stones in the same way that a jeweler engraves a seal, and then mount the stones in settings of gold filigree. Fasten the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as a reminder that Aaron represents the people of Israel. Aaron will carry these names on his shoulder as a constant reminder whenever he goes before the Lord. Make the settings of gold filigree. Then braid two cords of pure gold and attach them to the filigree settings on the shoulders of the ephod. Then with great skill and care, make a chest piece to be worn for seeking a decision from God. Make it to match the ephod using finely woven linen embroidered with gold and with blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Make the chest piece of a single piece of cloth folded to form a pouch nine inches square Mount four rows of gemstones on it. The first row will contain a, a red carnelian, a pale green peridot, and an emerald. The second row will contain a turquoise, a blue lapis lazuli, and a white moonstone. The third row will contain an orange, don't know what that word is, and a, I don't know that one either, and a purple amethyst. <laughs> amethyst. The fourth row will contain a blue-green barrel, an onyx, and a green jasper. And all these stones will be set in gold filigree. How are we doing? All right, here we go. I know you're just... Man, I'm glad I came to church today. Each stone will represent one of the 12 sons of Israel and the name of that tribe will be engraved on it like a seal. To attach the chest piece to the ephod, make braided cords of pure gold thread. Then make two gold rings and attach them to the top corners of the chest piece. Tie the two gold cords to the two rings on the chest piece. Tie the other ends of the cords to the gold settings on the shoulder pieces of the ephod. And then make two more gold rings and attach them to the inside edges of the chest piece next to the ephod. Then make two more gold rings and attach them to the front of the ephod below the shoulder pieces, just above the knot where the decorative sash is fastened to the ephod. I'm just seeing how much more we have. We're good, guys. We're nearing the corner. 
This makes Ikea directions like the easiest thing in the world, if you've ever done that, this is amazing. Then attach the bottom rings of the chess piece to the rings on the ephod with blue cords. This will hold the chess piece securely to the ephod above the decorative sash. In this way, Aaron will carry the names of the tribes of Israel on the sacred chess piece over his heart when he goes into the holy place. This will be a continual reminder that he represents the people when he comes before the Lord. Insert the Urim and the Thummim, these are these like uh, sacred lots that they had into the sacred chess piece so they will be carried over Aaron's heart when he goes into the Lord's presence. In this way, Aaron will always carry over his heart the objects used to determine the Lord's will for his people whenever he goes in before the Lord. Make the robe that is worn with the ephod from a single piece of blue cloth with an opening for Aaron's head in the middle of it. Reinforce the opening with a woven collar so it will not tear. Make pomegranates out of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and attach them to the hem of the robe with gold bells between them. The gold bells and the pomegranates are to alternate all around the hem. Aaron will wear this robe whenever he ministers before the Lord and the bells will, will tinkle as he goes in and out of the Lord's presence in the holy place. If he wears it, he will not die. That's good to know. That's important information. You gotta tinkle if you're gonna go be in the presence of the Lord. If not, you're a dead man, apparently. He says, next, we're almost there, guys, I promise. Make a medallion of pure gold and engrave it like a seal with these words, holy to the Lord. Attach the medallion with the blue cord to the front of Aaron's turban where it must remain. Aaron must wear it on his forehead so he may take on himself any guilt of the people of Israel when they consecrate their sacred offerings. He must always wear it on his forehead so the Lord will accept the people. Weave Aaron's patterned tunic from fine linen cloth. Fashion the turban from this linen as well. Also make a sash, decorate it with colorful embroidery. For Aaron's sons, make, make tunics, sashes, and special head coverings that are glorious and beautiful. Clothe your brother Aaron and his sons with these garments and anoint them and ordain them, consecrate them so they can serve as my priests. Also, make linen undergarments for them to be worn next to their bodies, reaching from their hips to their thighs. These must be worn whenever Aaron and his sons enter the tabernacle or approach the altar in the holy place to perform their priestly duties. Then they will not incur guilt and die. This is a permanent law for Aaron and all his descendants after him. And that is Exodus chapter 28. I know, I'm sorry. What is the point of all that? It was a lot. And here's, here's the point. About five years ago, I was doing this whole, like I was trying to read through the Bible in a year. I don't think I, I did it that year. And I got to this part and I just remember reading it like, man, God is very, very picky about his clothes. And I think at the time my wife was watching like a fashion competition show on TV where different designers will make clothing. And so I kind of was tracking with it. Like I could sort of envision, you know, the process. And then I got to Exodus 29, and I just, I just had this moment reading the Bible that I was like, what? Like, what in the world? Because I just read all this, this amazingly detailed, painstakingly detailed, why is it even in here so detailed description of this clothing that God wanted his priests to wear? And then in Exodus 29, God says this. After all this is, is on them, right, they're wearing the clothes, God says, then take some of the blood from the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his sons and on their garments. In this way, they and their garments will be set apart as holy. And I was like, what, wait, wait, hold on. All right, God, let me get this straight. You want them to make these extremely detailed, what have to be unbelievably expensive garments. We're talking like, I want it to be fine, not just linen, fine linen. And I want it to be white. And, and, and I want all these gemstones on it. And I want gold thread and purple and scarlet and all these things. And I want it to be intricate and beautifully embroidered. And I want it to be amazing. And then when you're done, sprinkle blood on it. And it's like, hold on. 
We know from earlier, God values clean clothes. He told the people, consecrate yourselves, wash your clothes. Tide pods have not been invented yet. That is never coming out. That is never, you are never getting blood out of a fine white linen shirt. It's what in the world? I remember I was reading this like, what? Sprinkle blood on it. And it's so interesting because for us, if, if blood got on your shirt, especially if it was like a white shirt, you'd be like, well, that's, that's the end of that one. Like it's, it's ruined. That's never coming out. That's the way we would view that. But what we have to understand is in their culture, they saw blood in a very different way. Blood was, was precious. And blood was, was a representative of life. Blood always represented life. And so, so for them, the, the blood being sprinkled on these clothes, it doesn't ruin it at all. In fact, what it does is it consecrates their clothing. That's the way they would have seen it. The blood, more than the gemstones, more than all the fancy embroidery, it was the blood that would make it holy. And again, I know this is weird for us, but if we're gonna understand this whole so much blood portion of scripture, then we've gotta understand what, what the Israelites understood blood to be because it matters. So this begins to connect us to another idea that goes hand in hand with, with consecration. And it's the idea of atonement. Okay, atonement. You may have heard that word before, atonement. And it's interesting, the meaning of that word is actually in the, the word itself, it's at one It's bringing two things together. When there's a divide, when there's division, you need to take two things and, and have them be at one. They need to be in harmony with one, with one another. And specifically when it comes to being in harmony with God and being consecrated, you have to have atonement. So in Leviticus chapter 17, we're told that the life of the body is in its blood. God says, I've given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for life that makes purification possible. So this whole process of, of consecration, being right with God, being made holy, involves blood being spilled for the people of Israel, that there has to be blood spilled, apparently, and, and blood sort of splattered as a symbol that, that sin has been dealt with, and now life covers death, and you can now be restored, atoned for, and consecrated in the holy presence of God. And so as you read through this portion of scripture, it's like there's just blood everywhere. There's like so many animals. To have been a goat in ancient Israel would have been like the worst thing that you could have ever happened to you. Just like you'd be born, what am I? I'm a goat, oh, I'm dead. Like that basically would have been how it went. Like for example, 1 Kings chapter eight, Solomon, who's the third king of Israel, he's dedicating the temple that's been built to God. It says, then the king of Israel and all of Israel with him offered sacrifices to the Lord. Solomon offered to the Lord a peace offering of 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. And so the king and all the people of Israel dedicated the temple of the Lord. That same day, the king consecrated the central area of the courtyard in front of the Lord's temple. He offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of peace offerings there. And because the bronze altar in the Lord's presence was too small to hold all the burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings, they ended up going outside and, and doing it like in the courtyard. That's basically what they're saying. It'd be like if, if the main thing that we did for worship was sacrifice goats, and I said, hey guys, great news. We've got so many goats to kill today. We can't even fit them in here. So we're taking it outside. And everyone's like, yeah, woo, church was amazing today. Like we're like seven people got baptized, and they're like, there were thousands of goats mur murdered. It was great. Like that's a very different thing. 
But it's because of, of, we have to understand this idea of atonement. It's this atonement. That there's this, this idea in consecration that to be right in God's eyes, to be holy, something has to be atoned for. Sin has to be dealt with. And so for the people of Israel, the most holy day on their calendar is Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement. And it's a day that we learn about. It was a day that God ordained in Leviticus chapter 16. This is what God says to, to Aaron, the priest. He says that Aaron will present his own bull as a sin offering to purify himself and his family, making them right with the Lord. Then he must take two male goats and present them to the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle. He is to cast sacred lots to determine which goat will be reserved as an offering to the Lord and which will carry the sins of the people to the wilderness of Azazel. We'll talk about that next week. Aaron will then present as a sin offering the goat chosen by Lot for the Lord. And so on this day of atonement, what would happen is they would select these two, two goats, two sheep, and they would make sure they were perfect. These are spotless. These are perfect. No flaws whatsoever. And one of these, one of these lucky goats gets to be the sacrificial offering, innocent blood shed as a payment, as a substitute for all the sins of the people of Israel. This happened every year, every year for, for just thousands of years. This day of atonement, this day of a sacrifice. And what it is, is it's God reinforcing over and over and over again that sin is really serious. Sin is really, really serious. And it has to be atoned for. We're told in, in Hebrews chapter nine, that according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified or consecrated with what? With, with blood. That without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Seems a little harsh. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And so you have this, this thing happening in the, in the nation of Israel, all these sacrifices, and man, there were so many. In fact, Josephus was a historian that was a contemporary of Jesus' time, not a Christian, but he wrote about many of the things that back up scripture. It's really amazing. And he, he estimated that on a yearly basis, upwards of 256,000 animals were slaughtered at the temple just during the week of Passover. That is, that is a lot of blood. So much blood. Why? Why? The reason there was so much blood was to simply be a reminder that there is so much sin. And the thing is, we, we have this tendency as people, I'm just being honest about myself, we, we underestimate it. It's so easy to read scripture and think that God is like, I mean, come on, have you ever done this before? Where you're like, God, you're kind of overreacting. Like, just take a step back. It's not a big deal. There's a tendency in us as people to feel like God overreacts to sin. Or at the very least, we, we want to underestimate the seriousness of sin, at least my sin. I mean, I might be cool talking about how serious your sin is, but like my sin, I mean, it's not that bad. We don't think about it like that, but that's just how the world is. That's one of the reasons that the world, meaning like the culture apart from those following Jesus, will look at, at things in scripture and be like, oh, that's, that's bad. It's not the sin that's, the, that's bad in their eyes, it's the reaction to sin from God because we as people tend to underestimate it. But what God is, 
What God is establishing with all these sacrifices, with all this blood over and over again and the need for consecration and atonement and just rinse and repeat, just this cycle is that sin is really serious and it has to be dealt with and it has to be dealt with severely because it is severe. I love that scripture that says that the wages of sin is death because I believe that. And I think actually deep down inside, all of us really believe it because we've all experienced it. Sin and sin just being anything that we do that is apart from what God desires, where we step out of alignment with God and do things our own way, right? It's selfishness. It's choosing our way over God's way, whatever that might look like. We've all understood the effects that sin has on us and it kills us. It literally does. Like, how about this? I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands. Don't worry. Um, have you ever had, and I'll raise mine. Have you ever had sin kill your self-respect? It's like you, you do something that you didn't think you would do. You respond in a way that you just, you didn't think you were capable of responding. You thought better of yourself. And then in a moment of weakness or a moment of just pure selfishness, you do something that is so far apart from the person that you thought you were and your self-respect takes this massive hit. And it's like the death of self-respect or self-worth. Sin will kill self-worth. And there, there are times where we, we participate in, in things that we maybe even know in our hearts are not good, they're not right. And maybe we even know that God loves us and forgives us, which is absolutely true. But over time, we become so calloused or, or just beat down by our own sin that, that we don't think highly of ourselves at all. We actually begin to define ourselves by that, that sin. And we carry around this self-loathing. Our self-worth has been destroyed by sin. How about self-control? Sin will kill your self-control. And I, I know that, many of us know that because there are certain things that at one point in time we did because we wanted to, but then eventually you're like doing it because you have to. It's like when I started doing this, it was just a choice. Now it's, it's like I can't say no. Why? Because sin is destructive and sin doesn't mess around. It will destroy your self-control. It'll destroy your self-worth. It'll destroy your self-respect. Sin destroys trust. Many of us have experienced that where we stepped out of line and, and trust in a relationship was utterly destroyed. Sin it destroys your reputation in certain situations. My, my point is this, sin is destructive. It doesn't mess around, which is why the first time sin is ever talked about in scripture, it's in Genesis when God speaks to this young man, Cain, who's, who's like letting sin, it's kind of personified in this story. He's letting sin influence him and, and God's like, you better watch out, Cain. He actually says sin is crouching at the door and either you subdue it or it will master you and it will destroy you. And unfortunately for Cain, that's what happens. And see, it's so easy for us to look at this portion of scripture and we're gonna go in the next few weeks and talk about the wars and, and all that stuff, the really hard stuff. But we have to understand on the front end that the reason there's so much blood in the Bible is because there's so much sin. And even though it's not a popular topic to talk about today, sin is real, sin is, is ugly, it is evil and it is serious and sin must be dealt with. 
And so God tells the people, consecrate yourselves. Be holy. How do you do do that? Well, you have to atone for sin. Well, how do you do that, God? Well, you have to shed blood. Well, whose blood? And unfortunately for the goats, I don't know if there were just a lot of them and they were around. I don't know if they had a say, but that's the way that it fell. And all jokes aside, you have this constant reminder. Just imagine their worship being a constant reminder of the seriousness of sin and the necessity for atonement to be consecrated to God. There's so much blood because there's so much sin. Now, this brings us to something really awesome because I realized that at this point in time, if we said, well, all right, guys, happy Mother's Day. There's a lot of sin and there's a lot of blood, but thanks for being here. That'd be a weird way to end. Because like I said at the beginning, I love, I love this portion of scripture because it, it illustrates Jesus for us in an amazing way, in a powerful way. Let's go back to the Day of Atonement for a second. The Day of Atonement, over, over the years, this became such a, a process, such a, a finely tuned machine in terms of, of selecting the right animal. By the time Jesus was walking the earth, by the time he, he'd you know, left heaven, been born, I mean, it was down to a science, the way that the priest would select the sacrificial lamb every single year. And there was actually, by the time Jesus was around, one flock, one special flock of sheep that that the shepherds of that flock, I mean, they were the ones that they were gonna be tending the flock that the sacrificial lamb would be chosen from every single year. And that flock just so happened to be in Bethlehem, which if you know the story of Jesus is the same city where Jesus is born. And so, you you know, it's crazy to think about Christmas, right? The, The shepherds are the ones that God says, hey, come and see this child. They're the first ones that get to show up and see baby Jesus. And these shepherds very likely, very possibly, happen to be the same shepherds whose job it is every year to tend to the flock that the sacrificial lamb who will die innocently in place of all the sin of Israel will be chosen from. When John the Baptist sees Jesus early in Jesus' ministry, he says to the people around him, this is John chapter one, verse 29, says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. I mean, Jesus, he's my king. I've given my life to him. I love him. And it's hard for me when I picture him, like I you know, we, we sing songs sometimes like he's the lion. Like I like, he's the lion of Judah. That was language in their culture. And I'm like, yeah, my, my Jesus is a lion. Like he is powerful. Nothing can stop Jesus because lots of people have tried. No success. I believe that Jesus is the king of kings. I believe that all of history will end with Jesus reigning and the entire universe acknowledging who he is. It's really hard for me to picture Jesus as a lamb, as a sheep. But John said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you read Revelation, Jesus is described as a lamb, but a lamb who's been slaughtered, which in Revelation makes him worthy to reign. Galatians chapter one says that Jesus gave his life for our sins just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us 
from this evil world in which we live. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says that God who wants all people, our God who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy. He consecrated us and he freed us from our sin. Because he died in our place as an atonement for our sin. All of these sacrifices that we read, all, all the goats and all the bulls and all of the, all the bloodshed, all this ritual bloodshed that we see in the Old Testament, that's just like a constant thing. It's this constant reminder that sin is serious, that sin must be atoned for if we're going to be consecrated and made holy before God. And as you read it, you almost get to this point where you say, is there ever going to be enough blood? Is there ever going to be enough blood that's been shed to cover all the sin in the world? And the truth is that yes, one day there will be enough blood shed. There will be a final sacrifice and that final sacrifice has happened. It's Jesus Christ. He died as a sacrifice for us and now we have been atoned for and we've been consecrated to God. This is amazing. It's amazing and in, in many ways it's like Gospel 101, if you've been in church at all, you're like, Jesus died for my sins on the cross, like that, yeah. I've been learning about this since I was a child. And it's funny, I gave my life to Jesus at a pretty young age, and, and you don't have to raise your hand, but it'd be cool. Anyone else, like, you, you went all in pretty young, you're kinda like the kids this morning, you're like, yeah. Which means that if you're like me, you, you didn't do your best sinning until after you made that decision. <laughs> like, I came to Jesus as a fourth grader and it's like, have you asked Jesus to forgive you for your sins? And I'm like, yeah, I have. But I mean, I'm going to be honest. It was a pretty small list at that point in time. I mean, I'm sure it was bigger than the way I felt that it was. But it's like, I lied to my parents. Who doesn't? <laughs> Sorry, mom. Uh, she lives in Missouri. She watches from home. Um, I lied so much. Okay. Uh, but, but, you know, it was stuff like that. Like, I was mean to my little brother sometimes because he was, he was mean to me. It's just... But I remember the, the crisis of faith that I had around high school. I went to it, and I'm just sharing a little bit of my story. And actually, worship team, you guys can make your way out. I, uh, I grew up in a church culture that I'm really grateful for. And all of us, we've got so many people who've come from so many different backgrounds. Some of you have never been in church before. Welcome. This is so exciting for you because uh, we're all just as confused as you are. It's all good. Some of us grew up Catholic. Some, we, we get tradition and, and, and we understand a lot of those things that some of us who grew up and we, we didn't grow up in that kind of a liturgical background, we don't understand why we do any of the things we do. We just do them because we're told to do them. Some of us grew up in really like intense environments where it was like, you're following Jesus, this is serious, it's like boot camp. I, I grew up in a culture and I loved it. I, I learned the truth of scripture, I, I met Jesus there, I'm not mad about it at all, but it was a culture that was really big on like getting people saved as many times as it takes. I got saved five times, okay? And I'm not exaggerating. Because here's what would happen. I got saved at a young age. I was in fourth grade, I think, and then I got baptized when I was 12. And then I started, you know, I, my best sins started coming out. When I you know, hit about 13 years old, all of a sudden, 
I'm doing things that are worse than the things that I did before I got saved. And that was very confusing for me because if I'm a Christian, how, how am I supposed to, to live and have this sin in my life? And I know it's bad and I'm gonna hide it from my parents, but also like I like it. And I didn't know, it was, it was a, a big crisis for me. So I dealt with a lot of guilt. And then I go to church camp. And I don't know if any of you went to the kind of church camps that I went to every summer, you go. And it's pretty simple. It was actually looking back, I was like, it's pretty smart. There was a guy, and he'd always come out and he'd give like night one, because you're there for like five days. They wear you down. And night one, just hit him hard. Are you sure you're saved? Are you sure? Put a percent on it. Are you 100% sure that if you died today, and I'm gonna be honest, those camps were pretty poorly supervised. The chances were high. Like it was, there were a lot of kids and very few adults. But it was like, are you 100% sure? And I would sit there and I'd be like, well, I, I feel like I'm a solid 95%. Like Matt, you grew up in the same environments. Matt and I, we go back on this. I mean, I was until you started talking. <laughs> now I'm like 98. And he would be like, if you are not 100% sure. And then he would do this, this thing. Uh, I say he, he represents many guys, but they all have the same bit. I mean, if, if, if you're not 100% sure, do you have this in your life? And what about this, this, and this? And just list off all the sins that every teenager who's ever existed struggles with. And you're like, oh no, how does he know? You know, how does he know? He's like, hey, you, I mean, you better be 100%. And then there'd be this moment. And with every head bowed and with every eye closed. And the band would be playing just like they are right now but maybe they'd lean in a little harder, be a little bit more like, yeah. And it's just like me and all my friends making a beeline because we gotta be 100% sure. That happened to me multiple times. And it actually created a crisis in me because I just kept feeling like, well, how, how can I really be a Christian and I keep doing this, I keep making these decisions, but I still have sin in my life. And I know that that's not what God wants and all this stuff. And then one day there was this clarity moment. And I recognized for the first time in my life that the main factor in my relationship with God is not my performance. It isn't my ability to sin less. It is not my ability to live better. The primary factor in my relationship with God and my right standing with God and how holy I am in God's eyes is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That sacrifice paid the price for my sin and for your sin. That sacrifice makes us holy. That sacrifice makes us pure. Again, 1 Corinthians 13 says Christ has made us right with God. He's made us pure and holy and he's freed us from sin. The reason there's so much blood is because there's so much sin. But when we get together and we do church together today, we don't shed blood anymore. But we do celebrate blood that has been shed for us. Because the truth is, sin is just as serious today as it was 3,000 years ago. My sin is serious. I am more often than I would like to be reminded of how serious my sin is. Your sin is serious. But this blood, this is serious. That Jesus Christ died once and for all as a sacrificial lamb, as the final sacrifice. He atoned, completely atoned 
for every sin in your life, past, present, future, and through faith in Jesus, you are consecrated to God, you are made holy because of the blood that was shed for you. And that means you are not defined by your sin. That means God does not look at you through the filter of your sin. You are holy. You are made righteous, you are made pure by the blood of Jesus Christ. And with that in mind, let's take Lord's Supper together. And if you weren't able to grab a cup of, of juice and some bread in the back, feel free to grab it now. You are totally good to do that. I know our, our awesome ushers will help bring it to you as well. When you read the Bible and you see blood, remember that that blood is a symbol for life. Life that ends up sacrificing itself to cover the death that sin generates. And there's never been a life more beautiful than the life of Jesus. There's never been a life more powerful than the life of Jesus. There's never been a life more worthy, more bright, more precious than the life of Jesus. Jesus did not sin. Jesus did not need to be consecrated. He already was. Jesus did not need to be made holy. He didn't need an animal to die in his place because he was sinless and blameless. And then he gave himself up for us. And this meal that we take each week, it reminds us of this beautiful truth. And so with that said, let's take the bread and let's pray for it and thank him for it. Father, thank you for this bread and for what it means, for what it represents your body broken for us. Jesus, your body broken for us on the cross. Given up as a sacrifice to consecrate us, to make us holy so that we can be holy in your presence. We thank you for this, Jesus. Let's take the bread. I think sometimes if you're like me, you live in a little bit of fear sometimes, it just pops in your head out of nowhere maybe that, that your sins are gonna catch up with you, at least in God's eyes, that there's just gonna be a day where he's like, oh, okay, well, now we gotta talk. And you know, look, look when you make mistakes, as a Jesus follower, we're gonna talk a lot about this next week. Like don't, don't partner with sin once you've been freed from it again. Don't do that, but it's easy to do. But one of the biggest things that, that we can easily forget is that this, this blood covered our sin once and for all. That this payment was more than enough to cover your sin. I meet with people all the time who are like, yeah, but I've, this is what I've done. And they list some stuff off. And some people have pretty impressive lists. I'm not gonna lie. Like, wow. Your sin pales in comparison to the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus. Your sin has been completely and totally covered. That's what this reminds us of. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this juice that represents the blood of your son. Thank you, Jesus, for shedding your blood for us, for being the final sacrifice. Because our sin is serious and we're willing to admit that and own that. And we needed something, someone to stand in our place and pay a price that's too steep for us to pay ourselves. And you did that, Jesus. 
Help us be grateful for that, Lord, thankful for that. Help us lean into that, Lord, and help us put all of our trust in that. We don't put our trust, Jesus, in our ability to do things the right way. We don't put our trust, Jesus, in our ability to toe the line. We put our trust in your grace, in your forgiveness, and your mercy, and in the blood that you shed on our behalf. And we thank you for that, Jesus. Let's take the, let's take the juice.